This is tax update for July 23, 2005. Today's tax update podcast, which is regular tax update podcast number six, will deal with reimbursing employees' business expenses. Again, this tax update podcast is intended for tax professionals and is not designed for those who are not skilled in independent tax research. All readers and listeners are expected to do their own research to confirm items raised in this presentation before relying on any of the positions presented. Also, this podcast may be freely distributed. However, the use of it is prohibited. If you're going to be charging a fee for the use of this podcast, then permission must be obtained. Such prohibited use would include using the podcast as part of a CPE presentation for which a fee is charged without the advanced permission of the author of this podcast. That would be me. Again, if you have comments on the podcast, you can send them to now update at gmail.com. You can also visit the website for the podcast. That's at ezollers.libsyn.com. And you can look there for the notes for the show and the links to the documents to download. As well, those links will be at my website, edzollers.com. A key issue many CPAs deal with working with small business clients is the issue of employee business expenses. If your client, even if they're the only person working in the business, has set up their business to be a corporation, either an S-corporation or a C-corporation, we generally have the problem that they are working as an employee of the business, and if they incur expenses, expenses would be deductible as an employee business expense if paid by the person directly. As well, many of our clients have employees who will incur expenses, or we have clients who are employees and are incurring expenses. We will look for this reason to the issue of how we can deal with the employee business expense problem. What is the problem? Well, to put it succinctly, I suppose the best way to phrase it is Congress doesn't like employees. At least that's what the Internal Revenue Code seems to suggest. Employees run into a problem with unreimbursed expenses incurred in the course of their job. Now, the good news is, Code Section 162A, we get the ordinary and necessary test because these are considered business expenses. The fact that a person is employed selling his services to his employer means they're in that trade or business. That's good news. We get the ordinary and necessary test. That's broad. However, from here on, it becomes bad news. Section 62A1 allows trader business expenses deductions can be used in computing adjusted gross income, meaning above the line, except those expenses incurred as an employee. <clears throat> Bad news. The problem is, if a deduction is not allowed above the line, then it drops down as an itemized deduction. Now, following the structure through the 60 sections of the code just a little bit, you're going to find that mechanically, Code Section 67 catches everything as a miscellaneous itemized deduction, except for those specific items that it allows to be treated as not a miscellaneous deduction. And there are problems with being a miscellaneous itemized deduction. Key first one is, of course, that you're subjected to the 2% of adjusted gross income limitation. Not a good thing. So first, we must itemize. We can't, if we can only get the standard deduction, we're not going to get a benefit. Number two, we get to whack off 2% of our adjusted gross income from all the miscellaneous itemized deductions. And in many cases, the employee business expense may be the only or the only significant miscellaneous itemized deduction that the person has. And finally, 
Miscellaneous itemized deductions under code sections 56, actually 56B1A little i, provides that miscellaneous itemized deductions are not deductible in computing the alternate minimum tax. So we have this problem. If you incur too few employee business expenses, you're going to lose them to the 2% limit or simply not being able to itemize. And if you have too much, the alternative minimum tax kicks in and you lose the benefit at that end. If the expense is not treated as employee business expense, we get it above the line and none of these problems arise. Basically, our issue. Well, Code Section 62A2 does provide an out for employees. And what it says is certain employee business expenses will be excluded or deducted in coming up with adjusted gross income. Now, basically, they fall into a number of categories. Our list involves, involves essentially five classes of expenses that allow us to get an above-the-line deduction. We're going to deal with these five classes. Four of them we can deal with fairly rapidly because they are very narrowly focused. The fifth one we're going to, is the one we're going to spend our time on, and that's the reimbursable expenses. But let's talk about them. We have some industry or job-specific ones we want to get out of the way first. First, expenses of certain performing artists. Deductions allowed by Section 162, paid or incurred by a qualified performing artist, are deductible above the line. This is Code Section 62A2B. Note the individual has to meet the test here, which involve a number of hoops to jump through to prove you are truly a performing artist, and also that you incurred enough expenses to make this worthwhile. You have to clear that. Oh, and finally, your income, can't, your earnings cannot exceed a certain amount. Well, not many clients are going to meet all of those tests, even if there are a performing artist, so this has a limited applicability. The second broad category, certain expenses of public officials. Deductions allowed by Section 162 paid or incurred by an official of a state or political subdivision of a state for a position compensated in whole and part of a, on a fee basis. Those are deductible above the line. Fairly broad, but we need the correct position to get it. Number three, certain expenses of elementary and secondary school teachers. This is the one that probably we all know about the most. Of course, this is the one that is capped at a whopping $250. But nevertheless, if it's available, you make use of it. It's available for certain classroom expenses specified in the code uh, that are paid by an eligible educator, as defined in Section 62D1, not otherwise excluded under Sections 135, 529C1, or 530D2. Basically, you can't get a double deduction. The eligible educator is defined under Section 62D1 as a grade as basically kindergarten through grade 12 teacher, instructor, counselor, principal, or aide in the school, with a school being defined by state law for at least 900 hours during the school year. That person gets up to $250 of the expenses. All the rest treat as employee business expenses with the same problems we'll discuss, we discussed above. Finally, another one that was recently added, certain expenses of members of the reserve components of the armed services. There again is a limited deduction available for expenses capped at the rate authorized for travel expenses for employees of agencies under federal law incurred by a member who is more than 100 miles away from home in connection with his reserve services. Again, a limited basis, available if it's there you take it. Unfortunately, most of our clients aren't going to fall into any one of these categories. 
So they run into the problem of now having to meet the general accountable plan tests because our final option is code section 62 B2A says generally an employee does not have to take a, does not have to include in their income reimbursements received for expenses incurred. Well, that's good news until you get to section 62C. There are, 62C tells you that an arrangement will not be considered a reimbursement arrangement unless it meets some very specific tests. Uh, basically, so we will not have a reimbursement arrangement unless we meet the tests imposed by 62C. That brings us to the wonderful world of accountable plans. Now, Section 62C provides, basically, that, as it's quoted, for purposes of subsection A2A, the reimbursements arrangements, an arrangement shall in no event be treated as a reimbursement or other expense allowance arrangement if, two conditions, number one, such arrangement does not require the employee to substantiate the expenses covered by the arrangement to the person providing the reimbursement, or condition number two, such arrangement provides the employee the right to retain any amount in excess of the substantiated expenses covered under the arrangement. Now, there is a basic exception here if you are there for deemed substantiated expenses under Section 274D. We will go ahead and we will mention that and we'll get into that later. But basically, we have two tests. However, You'll discover that this short piece of text spawned a much larger regulation found at Regulation Section 1.62-2. How long is that regulation? Your first hint comes when you look at the at Section 162-2A and discover that subpart of the regulation is solely a table of contents to the rest of the whole regulation. When you have a regulation that demands its own table of contents to find your way around in it, you have a long regulation. The code is clear on two facts. For a plan that counts reimbursement arrangement, the employee must substantiate all expenses, and the employee must agree to return any amount received in excess of the substantiated amount. If that's not true as part of the plan, it is not an accountable plan, it's not reimbursement, and we're not going to get an above-the-line exclusion. Regulation 1.62-2C1 outlines a three-part test for a plan to count as an accountable plan or reimbursement plan. Basically, there's a business connection test, a substantiation test, and a test regarding the return of amounts paid in excess of expenses. Three tests. The regulation points out an employer may have multiple arrangements with the same employee. That is, you don't necessarily have to have a single overreaching plan, considering even considering a single employee. You can have multiple types of plans to deal with different situations or perhaps even different expenses. As well, the regulations may deem you to have two arrangements, even when you're dealing with one arrangement, because the regulations may break it into two parts, because under the regulation, there is a classification made for each plan as to whether it is an accountable or a non-accountable plan. What's the difference? A plan that passes all three of the tests imposed under this regulation is an accountable plan, while an arrangement that fails any of these tests is a non-accountable plan. So you take a look at the reimbursement and you discover it's under an accountable or a non-accountable plan. What's the effect? Payments under an accountable plan are excluded from employees' gross income, are exempt from federal income tax withholding, are not included in a W-2, and are not subject to FICA and FUTA tax. 
uh, or railroad retirement if that's the way the uh, that's what the employer is covered by. Payments under non-accountable plans are included in the employee's gross income, including the W-2, are subject to federal tax withholding, FICA, and FUTA. Expenses related to such payments that otherwise were deductible may still be deducted by the employee, but now they move down below the line as a miscellaneous itemized deduction and are subject to the 2% test and have the alternate minimum tax problems we discussed earlier. Clearly, it's best result for the employee and the employer if the plan is deemed to be accountable. However, the conditions involved may cause a situation where the plan is not going to be an accountable plan. We have to look at what we give up to get the tax benefit. So let's take a look at the three tests we have to meet. Remembering all three tests must be met or this plan will not be accountable and the amounts received will be deemed to be income to the employee and any employee business expenses they were supposed to have reimbursed will get moved down below the line onto Form 2106 and deducted subject to that 2% limitation. Let us first consider the business connection test. Regulation 1.62D outlines the business connection test for an arrangement. To be an accountable plan, the arrangement must reimburse only those expenses that are otherwise deductible for an employee under Part 6, Subchapter B, Chapter 1 of the Internal Revenue Code. Now, the payment can be made by the employer or we can assign a third party to reimburse on the employer's behalf. That's not a problem. We also can give the employee a credit card that the employee uses to charge the expense that gets reported back to the employer, and that's fine as well, too. One caveat on the regulation. If you give an employee a paycheck that includes both wages and reimbursement, something that may very well happen quite often, the reimbursement or expense allowance portion of the payment, the paycheck, must be specifically identified. So you've got to make clear on the paycheck or the pay stub how much of the paycheck is for salary and how much is for reimbursement. Best to keep documentation that that was done in a timely fashion. If a plan provides for reimbursement both of items that are deductible and those that are not deductible under the code, even though related to the business, say travel, travel not away from home, would not be deductible to the employee, but the employer might still reimburse it. So the travel didn't qualify, we're still reimbursing it. Then the employer's treating has two arrangements, an accountable one for the deductible expenses, assuming all the other requirements of an accountable plan are met, and a non-accountable one for those expenses that would not generally be deductible. The non-accountable portion gets the tax treatment of being included in income, and since the employee has no deduction, it's just going to be taxable, subject to FICA, subject to income tax withholding, and all the other fun things noted as we started this presentation. The regulation specifically addresses the concept of allowances that are paid as a matter of right, whether or not the expense is incurred. I don't know about you, but I have quite a few clients that really, really, really want to pay an allowance to the to the client, to their employees. Their theory is I want to give them a $200 a month or a $300 a month auto allowance, and I don't want to be bothered with the paperwork. The regulation makes clear this is not an accountable plan. The regulation also makes clear that's going to be as a non-accountable plan subject to withholding and included in the W-2 income. The pushback may come from the employees. Many times the employees don't want to keep these records or submit the documentation or agree to the reimbursement. 
an employer needs to be informed that while they can do such a plan, because the law certainly doesn't say you can't do it, they do need to be clear to their employees the tax consequences this is going to be in their W-2. We need to avoid surprises that you're in. Employees generally don't like being surprised in this manner. The substantiation requirement. Let's assume we've met the business connection test and we don't have an allowance problem. Now we have to deal with substantiation of the expense. There are two basic sets of tests you've got to look for. The key question you start with is, is this an expense that is covered by Section 274D of the Internal Revenue Code, or is it not? You may remember, 274D imposes documentation requirements for certain expenses. For instance, travel expenses, entertainment, gifts, or any expense related to listed property. With a reminder, listed property, in addition to autos, includes autos that are not considered luxury autos. A suburban is still listed property, even though its depreciation is not limited. It also includes an item that many people tend to forget about these days, but the IRS has begun to notice in certain jurisdictions, and that is cellular telephones are considered listed property. The taxpayer must substantiate those items under one set of rules. Then there is a second set of rules for your accountable plan if the expense is not subject to the 274D limitations. If it's subject to 74D, the employee must provide all of the documentation corroborating the expense that is required in general under 274D. That means from the, from the code section, the taxpayer must substantiate by adequate records or by sufficient evidence corroborating the taxpayer's own statement, meaning their word isn't good enough, the amount of such expense or other item, the time and place of the travel, entertainment, amusement, use of the facility, etc., or the date and description of the gift, the business purpose of this expense, and the business relationship to the taxpayer, the person is entertained, using the facilities, receiving the gifts, or on the other line of the cell phone. There are regulations under 274D. The employees must comply with the regulations. This particular podcast isn't going to deal with those in detail, but just warn you, you need to get in there. If you have autos, they need to meet the auto test. If they have cell phones, they need to have some sort of record to prove the information. For cell phones, in many cases, identifying the call on the statement received, the detailed statement, may be adequate, but somebody needs to be doing this accounting. For all other expenses that aren't covered by 274D, Regulation Section 1.62-2E3 provides the expense between substantiate. The employee gives the employer enough information to identify the specific nature of each expense and to conclude the expense is attributable to the employer's trade or business. The regulation specifically identifies as insufficient an aggregation of expenses into broad categories. An employee can't just walk in and tell the employer, I spent $500 on travel and leave it at that. That is inadequate. Or a report with individual expenses using only vague, non-descriptive terms. You get the list of specific receipts, but the only description is miscellaneous business expenses. Both of those are inadequate. If the records look like that, you have a non-accountable plan. Reminder, if you have a non-accountable plan, it's in the W-2 wages, the employer owes the FICA, there should have been tax withholding, all kinds of bad results. A plan that allows for such reporting is non-accountable. 
also a plan, since in many cases the plan may not be formally written. Reality is a plan that allows for such things in operation, we just don't worry about it, is also going to be a problem. The final test, returning amounts in excess of expenses. Regulation 1.62-2F1 provides a general outline of what is considered to be a plan that requires return amounts in excess of expenses. There basically are a couple of tests we deal here. A plan must require the return of excess funds within a reasonable period of time. Any amounts received in excess of the amount substantiated in order to be an accountable plan. And if the plan advances the funds before the expenses are incurred, seems likely if we're going to worry about getting something refunded, then the amounts advanced must be reasonably calculated so they are not expected to exceed the actual amount of expense to be incurred. And such advance must be made within a reasonable time period prior to the day of the actual expenditure expected to be made. That is, your, your client cannot get creative to use this as a method to make a large interest-free loan to his employee, who may be himself. You cannot advance an employee $20,000 for an airline ticket from Phoenix to Ontario, California, for a trip that he will take in 10 months. That's not reasonable. That's going to fail this test. Despite the fact the employee may be required to pay back the excess after that trip is done and account for the test. Regulation 1.62-2G spells out exactly what is meant by a reasonable period of time and the consequences of a plan that appears to be structured to overpay the advances. General rule is you have a facts and circumstances test for a reasonable period of time. What that means is no matter what happens, you always could argue the facts and circumstances made it reasonable in your case. That's good news because we have a couple of mechanical safe harbors here. Now, generally, we'd prefer to hit the safe harbors, but if a client misses the safe harbor, they still at least have a chance to argue facts and circumstances. Let's discuss the two safe harbor methods. The fixed date method. Under the fixed date method safe harbor, the following time periods will be deemed reasonable. Your advance must be made no more than 30 days before an expense is paid or incurred. 30 days in advance for advances. The substantiation must be made to the employer within 60 days after the expense is paid or incurred. The employee has 60 days to get the substantiation in. Repayment is made within 120 days after the expense is paid or incurred. In essence, under that scenario, there is no way an employee could hold on to unspent funds for more than 150 days. And that would only happen if they magically got their advance 30 days before the expense was paid. Second safe harbor method, periodic statement method. Instead of the fixed date safe harbors, an employer can provide employees with a statement no, frequent, no less frequently than quarterly, showing the gross advance is paid during that quarter, the expense is substantiated through the statement date, and the net unsubstantiated expense amount, and requests the employee to substantiate the expense or repay the excess within 120 days of the statement. Any expense substantiated or paid within that period will be deemed to have taken place within a reasonable time. Now this cut bo cuts both ways. If you have advanced the employee the funds one day before your statement date, then the employee may have only 120 days to pay the expense and get it counted back to you and get it back to your pot back into the employer's pocket, unlike under the fixed date period. However, 
Basically, they also may have an extended period of time. The advance took place at the start of the period. This is more administrative simplicity. It allows you to have a standard system where they keep reporting every quarter, and that will be deemed okay even though the quarterly reporting may push you outside the fixed date periods. But if you're using the fixed, if you're using the statement method, you are stuck with its time periods, which you must realize can be shorter than the time periods under the fixed date method. If an employee fails to repay these amounts, the regulations make it clear if you fail these, the amount is deemed to have been paid under a non-accountable plan and voila, it's in their W-2. Now, there is an exception to the safe harbor. This is the pattern of overpayments problem. The IRS provides the safe harbors will not apply if the employer has a plan or a practice, and that's important practice, to provide employees with an amount in excess of substantiated expenses to avoid reporting or withholding on such amounts. What that means is if the employer continually grants excessive advances to the employees, the plan may be deemed non-accountable based on either its design or its actual operation. Clearly, the IRS concern here was again with disguised loans. The issue appears to be to capture what could otherwise become disguised loans through the creative use of advances. You need to warn clients they have to estimate any advance to be reasonably within the amount they expect to be incurred. I doubt there's going to be a major problem if employees are constantly sending back $10, $15, I suspect there will be a major problem if employees are continually writing four-figure checks back to the client, at least unless they're having to charter a Learjet to Europe out of their checkbook. If the employer does not control this matter and does not take action if it appears they are overestimating, they risk having the amount both including their employees' W-2s and being liable for payroll taxes. That's likely to lead to very upset employees and likely to lead to not terribly happy uh, a client who's going to have to write the payroll tax checks and penalties. There are a couple of issues we're going to discuss now dealing with cases that have come down in recent years about how we might deal with this. You know, you look at this and you go, well, what I'd really like to do is take a chunk of my employee's salary, or if I'm an employee, I'd like to have a chunk of my salary if I'm going to incur these expenses, and have it designated as the reimbursement. So if I was going to be paid $3,000 for this pay period, but I'm going to incur $100 worth of expenses, then what I'd like to do is take a pay of 2900 and have 100 be expense reimbursement because that's going to put me in a better position tax-wise. Well, in 1999, we had a private letter ruling that seemed to indicate we might be able to work around this. Letter ruling 1999-16011 was discussed in PPC's 1120 desk book in Key Issue 17B, the 2005 edition, and it was noted there that the IRS had indicated they had approved a program at that time where the employer each year would determine an amount they would exclude from what they were going to pay the employee. And it would be treated as paid under an accountable plan because the employee would agree to pay back any excess not accounted for and then meet all the other tests. But at the beginning of the year, the employer would set a different amount potentially for every employee. Uh, while the ruling didn't discuss it, PPC's author suggests, and I would agree, that it seems very naive to believe the employer would have come up with those numbers without discussing it with the employee as to how much they expect to incur, since we're fine-tuning this number and employees are probably the ones pushing for this, so the employer is trying to fine-tune this situation. However, 
Shortly after issuing that ruling, in fact, the next year, the IRS had second thoughts. Letter ruling 2035-012 held that that particular employer could no longer rely on that ruling after June 30, 2000. So the IRS revoked the ruling. Second, remember, a private letter ruling would never apply to anyone who was not covered by that ruling. What this means is, theoretically, you could still look to the analysis under the old ruling and attempt to claim you could meet the test, but you do so definitely at your own risk. The revocation of that ruling suggests strongly that the IRS could very well challenge such an arrangement and indicate and treat it as, in fact, an informal rage reduction plan, the theory being the employee had a right to that amount of money and then sort of assigned the income back or assigned the expense over. Such an arrangement would look very similar to a 125 plan, trying to do an informal 125, except this is a benefit not allowed under a 125 plan. And also, this is a benefit that most likely wasn't provided under a written obligation that said the employee could set the amount. Therefore, it would fail under multiple counts under Section 125. And note, you also need to watch out for if magically an employee... The IRS may allege you had such an arrangement if an employee magically agrees to a pay cut that is equal just about to what they had in their 2106 and gets an expense reimbursement equal to the same. If an employee seems to do that and out of the graciousness of their heart take a pay cut, but oh, by the way, get this expense allowance that works just perfectly, and it gets reset every year to be redialed, IRS might decide you had just the type of plan they decided they didn't like in their revocation of the ruling. Secondly, there was a creative attempt to make use of employer reimbursements back in a 2002 tax court case, which, which ultimately went to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and finally even was attempted to be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, who denied certiorari in the case. What happened in this case? Well, the case of Beal versus Commissioner. As you may recall, until last year, a very major issue, and even continuing today, in certain cases, because certain expenses are not allowed, was what happened to an, to an employee who sued their employer. In the case of Beal, Beal sued the employer and was even awarded legal fees as part of the award, so the employer had to pay the legal fees. Beal took the position that that was a reimbursement under an accountable plan. That was a reimbursement. It would be an accountable plan. He then basically excluded that from his income. The IRS disagreed. They went to tax court. In Beal versus Commissioner, cited as 18 as 118 TC 467, affirmed by the by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals 351 F 3rd 982, certiorari denied. The tax court held that tough luck because their position was it failed the business connection test. Ignoring all the other issues in the regulation, the IRS pointed out we had regulation 1.62-2, and because this was clearly not incurred on behalf of the employer, it failed the business connection test. It may have been incurred because of the employer, but an accountable plan requires expenses to be incurred on behalf of, and clearly the employer had not gone around suggesting that their employees should be hiring attorneys to sue them. That probably was not how the employer approached things. Therefore, having failed that, they did not consider the other two tests would be involved. 
Now, while the addition of Section 62C19's exclusion of awards related to attorney's fees arising from discrimination in other suits may render the exact fact pattern in Beal moot. Again, don't know, I didn't go into details of exactly what Beal was suing them for. There still could be a case, though, where an employee had a suit against his employer and had reimbursement of other types of expenses that were in play. If anything else was reimbursed for the employee, you may still find the Beal case coming down on the accountable plan. As well, consider the other two issues in a case like that the tax court did not consider. Can this, quote, plan, unquote, really meet the substantiation and return of amounts incurred test? There it would be a real question, even if we cleared the hurdle of on behalf of the employer, whether we could clear the other issues. This has been the Tax Update Podcast for the week of July 26, 2005. The Tax Update Podcast is intended for tax professionals who will independently confirm what we have discussed here today. This podcast can be freely distributed for non-commercial purposes. That includes using it inside of a firm if you wish to pass it around for update purposes. However, any fee-generating issue, meaning fee is charged fee to listen to this, not fee of actually doing something for a client using, using information contained in here, but fee in terms of charging for this, will need the permission of the author. Please direct your comments to edzollerstaxupdate at gmail.com. As well, you can go to the website edzollers.com and the website at ezollers.libsyn.com and download the documents referred to in this podcast, including an outline that I'm uploading for this podcast. This has been the Tax Update Podcast number six.